Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This is the same song, fun fact. Um, it is by Sovereign Grace Music called This Is Our God. And it kind of follows the structure of the Nicene Creed. So right there you heard the um, the verse that almost corresponds entirely uh, verbatim with the section on God the Father and the Nicene Creed. Of course, it's not verbatim. They changed it up to make it fit the song, but it's pretty close. So it's a great confessional worship song that follows the Nicene Creed, which is um, great and should be used more, I think, in worship services. But that's neither here nor there. So we're actually starting the Nicene Creed today. Um, and the we'll explain the structure and what you can expect each time with this. Um, I want to just say... Real quick, that if you're a patron, thank you so much for supporting Christ as the Cure. You guys have made this uh, possible. Um, being a patron, I try to get you guys, you know, materials to show my appreciation. Like the, if you're a patron, you have all the study notes um, in written form. It's like 34 pages for the historical background, and then whatever this ends up being for all these episodes. Uh, but I try to give you those things, and we may do some Zoom calls for patrons. I just need to see if I can find time, but. Patrons really keep this show going. Um, and basically what it is, they, they um, give out of the generosity of their heart to promote and help spread Christ as the Cure um, by joining a tier and helping us pay for um, all the expenses for the website, for the hosting, uh, for the time put into this. And I'm just really appreciative of the conversations and the encouragement and support. Um, and so I try to put together couple of exclusive uh, courses for patrons and then study materials and supplemental materials. And I'm trying to get better about that. And so they've actually had access to the historical episodes for quite some time along with the full notes. Um, so thank you patrons for that. And if you're interested in becoming a patron of Christ is the Cure, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Christ is the Cure. So when considering where to begin the breakdown of the Nicene Creed and how to break it up, uh, there really are many ways we could approach it. And after looking at the historical background leading up to the Creed of 381 uh, and the discussions on the necessity of extra biblical language for theological clarity, um, for me, whenever I was looking at it, I was like, it seemed right to begin at the very first word. In English, it's two words. Um, if you're going off a Latin text, it's I believe. If you're going off a Greek text, it's we believe. Uh, in Greek, it's pisteo men. We believe. Now, this creed would be considered to contain the heart of the Christian faith as a baptismal confession um, to be memorized by those who are converting. Um, so we're going to start with that one word. Um, we believe, or I believe. Um, and as we go through the creed, um, following this particular discussion, we're going to include... Uh, discussions on the historical background and issues surrounding each line. Uh, we're going to have a section for the biblical warrant and select biblical support, maybe sometimes with in-depth exegesis, sometimes not, depending on what the line is. Um, so it is a little bit subjective based off of uh, what I decide to include and exclude. Um, and I will also seek to make modern applications. And so with these types of things, there will be modern applications that are 
broad because we are dealing with theological concepts that can have broad applications. And so I am applying them where I see fit in terms of where I'm at, um, you know, in my perspective, in my walk, theologically, et cetera. Um, and a lot of it will be general observations that we've made over the years and things like that. So so what this looks like is we have the the line of the creed in question. We'll talk about the historical background and issues. And so we'll pull all that stuff that we've talked about before all this back in and just kind of restate um, it uh, so that you remember it within the context of the creed and you can recognize it. And then we'll talk about the scriptural basis with uh, exegesis on select passages or interpretation on select passages. And then we'll go to contemporary application. In theory, I'll follow that every time. Um, and then the goal, the overarching goal uh, for this series, whenever I'm thinking about it in terms of how I'm putting the material is, I want to foster general historical awareness and pull lessons from history overall. So we kind of did that with the idea of using extra biblical language, right? We talked about how that already is something that's necessary. And we'll talk about that again here today. Um, I also want to provide a core foundation of basic Christian doctrine based off of this creed with biblical support, because it's kind of like, well, why do we need this creed? Well, the creed is just a summary of Christian doctrine. So I want to provide that foundational core with that biblical support. Uh, of course, we're going to accompany it with um, an explanation of historical discussion surrounding each one. So you're going to have this connection with the early church. So there's this um, rich connection that I hope to promote between the early church and the modern church uh, and the Christian doctrine we have today, uh, which in many cases we presuppose these doctrines and we have adopted it from them, but now we finally understand how we got to where we are. So we're going we're gonna to bridge that gap, so to speak, in terms of our theological presuppositions in modern Christian circles. Um, and then the, the largest goal obviously, is to facilitate theological and spiritual growth through the creed via its reflection on biblical Christianity, right? Uh, love God, love your neighbor, drive to the word, um, have an appreciation for God's providence and history, and so on and so forth. So there's our quick introduction, six minutes, sorry about that. Um, that's what you can expect. Um, some episodes will address multiple lines, but we'll still follow the structure. And so if we address two lines, uh, and I want to break them up, then we'll follow that structure of history, biblical application for each of those lines in the same episode. And we're going to do that today. Um, this first section on we believe is going to be a little bit more broad because of, well, its nature. The historical discussion is very minimal. So in our first episode of this series, we're going to discuss we believe in one God. So we're going to be discussing two lines, or actually it's one line of the creed, but we're going to break it up into two parts. So we're going to speak about the first part of the line broadly with biblical support, and then we're going to provide a contemporary application. So the first word of the creed is a term that means we believe, or I believe in Latin. Um, so as we have seen, this confession of belief was not a mere last minute document that was just thrown together at some Bible study. Um, this was a compilation of years of doctrinal discussion, stacks of written works, hours of contemplation, and formulation of precise language. And 
whenever you consider the way that they wrote books back then, uh, it's very significant. We're talking about a very tedious process versus uh, typing something up on our Mac and throwing it on a podcast kind of thing. So the statement of we believe was not merely speaking what Christians were for, but also precisely articulating what they were against. It was the confession of the deep conviction of truth as revealed in Scripture and carried along by the apostles. It was the confession of the core essential beliefs that were foundational to be a part of the church and to be a Christian and what it means to follow the faith. This, for the writers at Nicaea, was the faith once delivered that they were contending for. Um, So within the context of this confession, it was believed that Jesus, the apostles, and the churches which followed them were to recognize and uphold the faith in the midst of theological perversions. This view is not foreign to Scripture, but rather it's a direct command and role of the church in Scripture to be guardians of the truth, to contend for the tradition that was passed down. Um, And so it was and is the role of churches and their leaders to protect and expound divine revelation and guard the faith. Uh, For the community of believers who would be instrumental in putting together the Creed of 381, we find that the heart of the Christian faith is summarized in the triune God. And in fact, if you look at the Creed, you can see how it's kind of broken up into a Trinitarian pattern. In fact, you'll find this with the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed. Um, this idea stems from Matthew 28. You'll go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian faith. The Trinity is active in all of salvation. All works of God are a Trinitarian work, ultimately. Um, even if you're not familiar with usio, hypostasis, if you're not familiar with all these concepts and uh, even having the discussions You, if you are in the faith, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have done so by the Spirit and have a relationship with the Father. You are inherently Trinitarian, whether or not you recognize it or not, if you are in the faith. So the heart of the faith was faith in the triune God, and revelation of that faith is found in the Word of God, and Jesus Christ incarnate, and it's penned in the canonical scripture. And so the biblical support for this idea is that there's a biblical basis for having a creed and confession to begin with. And really, this begins with the fact that there are creeds in the Bible itself. The most famous is the Shema, found in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the text in itself is a confession found within the Nicene Creed following this very line we are on. I believe in one God. Um, That idea... Uh, of monotheism, which we'll get to here in a minute, um, is part of this confession. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we find Paul writing up a confession, even beginning with, quote, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, end quote. His confession is that the mystery of godliness in this context is the wholeness of God's revealed plan of salvation. But following this confession, we find this poetic expression of Christology, which is common in Paul. He says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to the glory. Now, if we follow this through the text, and we continue on in 1 Timothy, uh, this confession contains aspects that are included in Nicaea. 
And we find immediately this pushback against those who would reject sound teaching in Paul. Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And that's 1 Timothy 4, 1. So while we could break down what follows in his explanation, the ultimate point that Paul is concerned over are those who will come in with these teachings that are contrary and depart from the faith. And this follows a very positive confession. He has this positive Christological confession. Then he says, but there are people that are going to come in and deny the faith. And whenever we look at uh, Paul or we look at the New Testament, theology, confession, and practice were all very closely tied together. We tend to separate them and make this false dichotomy between them. But for Paul especially, your theology affects your practice. And so if you're morally out of line, then it's because your theology um, is out of line, because you're not really believing in your head and in your heart, both the truth that you confess. And if you confess it truthfully, then you will act in accordance with that. Um, regardless, when we look at this text of Timothy, um, that connection is clear. We see this exhortation to practice the virtues of the Spirit, along with devoting the community to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching, with verse 16 having the simple imperative, keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers, end quote. So if we move from Paul, because Paul has a lot, um, you can see that in Philippians and Colossians with the Christological hymns or texts, they're kind of debated whether or not they're hymns, but there's a belief that they were um, well-known confessions minimally that may have been sung in churches that Paul utilized and adapted for his letters. Uh, so that's an interesting discussion in itself. It's a sidebar, but we find other confessions in Scripture that are important. Um, the con idea of confessions in themselves are important because it's what you believe in your heart, um, and it's, it's a statement about what truth is, and you're confessing it as truth. It's a deep conviction. It's not mere mental assent for Nicaea or for um, these individuals in the New Testament era. So whenever we look at Matthew 16 and 16 with Peter, we find that the people in Jesus' day were conflicted over his identity, and Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And in verse 14, the disciples give various answers, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, and then he presses them. He says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter is the one who replies, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this confession would become the rock on which the whole church was built. Uh, Jesus had said there would be many Christs, and many of the Jews had thought of themselves to have seen the Christ at one point or another in their life. Yet the confession here is that Jesus is the Christ, not merely a son of God either, but the son of God. This confession was important, and it was praised by Jesus. Uh, it was an exclusion of those other options of Messiah. It was also an exclusion of the option of Jesus being John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. It was a positive confession that, by its very nature, excluded other options. It eliminated other ideas. And so what we also find is that this identity of Jesus is linked inseparably to salvation. Jesus in John's Gospel stresses this. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John 8, 24, in the context of that, has been 
um, debated to either mean that he's talking about the Messiah, which makes sense with the median context, or even deity, if you read it as, you believe I am, you will die in your sins. And I am, of course, would allude to the divine name of Yahweh. So not only is there this pattern of confession in the biblical text, but there is this importance of upholding sound doctrine and contending for sound doctrine to the exclusion and the exposure of false teachings. The Creed of Nicaea deals predominantly with the theological aspect of false teachings and not so much the moral implications that you would find in the New Testament. But the early church, and again, the New Testament authors, found themselves um, to see them as linked. You could not separate them. Regardless, the church is called to be pure, Ephesians 5, 26-27. And Paul exhorts to, quote, present every man mature in Christ, end quote, Colossians 1, 28. Leaders in the church are called to be able to, quote, give instructions in sound doctrine or refute those who contradict it, Titus 1, 9. False teachers are called to be silenced, Titus 1, 11. And Jude, while he was desiring to write of the gospel, of other things, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. And the whole letter becomes a text very um, pointed on false teachers and exposing false teachers. So the importance of guarding sound doctrine and the confession is not missing from the biblical witness. And we even see that with Paul, the simple confession that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved in Romans 10, 9. More jarring are the texts of John the Apostle, where the Apostle calls those who deny the incarnation of Jesus antichrists. We tend to think of antichrist as one person, but John says anyone who denies that Jesus took on flesh is antichrist. Uh, and he says this in 1 John and 2 John in many ways, but in 2 John he has a very, very straightforward statement. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. 2 John 9, 11. Um, and that context would be itinerant preachers who would take up home with someone because of hospitality, and they would stay there and they would operate from that home and stay with them and use it as lounging while they preached and taught. Um, so th and that teaching is actually reflected in what is called the Didache later on, where you're not to accept or give money to itinerant false preachers. So what is the application of this in our modern context? I think it's pretty clear, I think, um, that I think they're immediate, I think they're great, and I think they're telling. First, we must put care and time into our articulations of that which is divine. The reality is, in our context, there is a tendency to reduce our theological reflections to God question in Google searches, along with devotional snippets and materials and social media snippets and materials. Our verse of the day, or we want our knowledge by osmosis, when to ascertain these things, we often have to dig and do some work. We have to put our mind to work, which is a God-given piece of organic matter. Um, we must be more diligent in our study, and not only this, but we should know what we believe, why we believe it, and confess it. And not only this, but whenever it comes to these topics, we, we can find imbalances in our own life whenever we look at what we can debate and what we can't debate. If you can debate 
your position on eschatology, but you can't debate the deity of Christ, then there's a priority check that needs to occur, and you need to brush up on the foundational truth that Jesus is the eternal Son taken on flesh, and where that is witnessed in Scripture. Second, there's a place, as we have seen, for speaking to what we are for and what we are against. Uh, There's a popular idea that we shouldn't speak to what we are against, but there's a balance here. Um, There's always a balance. Speaking against something without a positive apologetic for orthodoxy is useless. It won't help anyone. But at the same time, you cannot speak. You simply cannot speak for what you are for without, by necessity, excluding that which you are against. It is exclusive by inclusion. It is natural negative with the obligatory positive. If you say that Jesus is God, then you automatically deny those who deny Jesus is not God. So if we are to survey the entire Bible, we would find a great weight and dividing line present, uh, which is absent in our contemporary context. And this division is on proper doctrine um, from false doctrine. That line is drawn hard and fast throughout all of the Bible, um, and especially on the doctrine of Christ in the New Testament. And so many, so many modern errors center around the doctrine of Christ or theology proper. These old heresies that we talked about a couple episodes back are not um, lost. They are reformed, reincarnate into modern, modern articulations. Modalism is alive and well. Adoptionism is alive and well. Different forms of Arianism, Unitarianism, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they're, they're all alive and well, and they center upon Christ, and they affect the Holy Spirit, and they also affect the Father by extension. So such confessions... Clear and robust confessions are important because they make it clear where one's assembly, one's congregation lies, and where their congregation is theologically. Does your confession allow for the brotherhood of Neo-Aryans, or so-called Jehovah's Witnesses? Or does your confession allow for taking communion with the alterations of theology proper in Mormonism? So we must be clear, we must be sound, And as we have seen, sometimes extra-biblical language must be used. Um, Just as we examine with Athanasius and the Arians, simply saying phrases cannot be enough. Saying those simple phrases will be insufficient. Because who would deny that Jesus is from God? Uh, Very little. In fact, even a Muslim would affirm that Jesus is from God. Uh, And Jehovah's Witnesses would affirm that Jesus is from God. Even some Christian Buddhists will affirm that Jesus is from God. So saying something like that, like Jesus is from God, is hardly a confession. It's a confession, but without articulating precisely what you mean, it is not a robust confession. So if our church websites say that Jesus is from God in one line and then move on to the next thing, then we're doing a disservice to those who need to know what we believe, why we believe, and where we stand. Um, now say you turn that confession into Jesus is of the same essence of the father, the eternal son of God, whole God who took on human flesh in the incarnation. And suddenly those other individuals who could adhere to that confession that Jesus is from God disappear. The confession narrows, it removes certain receptors and it creates the necessary dividing line. Now, when we look at 
the Nicene Creed, for example, and we look at these lines, we're like, well, this is a positive confession. But as we demonstrated in our historical survey, it's a positive confession, but almost every point they make purposefully and intentionally refutes something at the same time. And I think it's a great model to follow by refuting that which is false with that which is positive. There's a place for both, but the Nicene Creed is a great example of that. Whenever you have that refutation of Arianism or those who deny the deity of the Spirit by saying things like the Holy Spirit, who is to be worshipped together with the Father and Son, uh, that's significant. Now, the last application point here um, is because Nicaea is a creed, we should tie all these points together and talk about the common trendy phrase, no creed but Christ. Um, It is problematic for the reasons that we mentioned already, because all you have to do is ask, which Christ? What is the Christ? What does Christ mean? There are theological, or let's just say there are creedal propositions behind the word Christ and Christ's identity. In our historical observations so far, we discussed how some groups, uh, whether it be the adoptionists or the Arians or some Arians, they would affirm that there is a Christ and a Christ who is distinct from Jesus and who allows Jesus to partake by grace in that wisdom of the Christ or the anointing of that Christ and thus be called Christ. Is this Christ a mere anointing that allows for the adoption of a human Jesus as the Son of God, the genuine Christ? Or is it one of the false Christs that Jesus points out in Matthew 24, 24? I just got done reading through what does the Bible really teach by the Watchtower Publication Society, which is the Jehovah's Witness um, shorthand theological tract, and they have a section on the Christ. Now, they have a section on the Christ, and they get a good deal of that section right, but whenever you look at their Christology as a whole, and you look at who has the title of Christ, is their version of Jesus Christ correct? No. So, just saying... No creed but Christ is insufficient because there are real, hidden, creedal affirmations and presuppositions behind it. So we can confess more astutely the identity of Jesus. We can confess more precisely this truth that Jesus is God, the Son, eternally in relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's neither created nor made. He is the Son Almighty. He is whole God, true God, God the Son, co-essential, co-eternal with the Father and of the express image of the Father. He is God the Son, not only in the incarnation, but from all eternity in glory with the Father before the world began. Truly God and through the virgin birth, truly man. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah who was promised to arrive and to be a savior as foretold in the scriptures. He walked the earth. He was Emmanuel, God with us, and he lived a sinless life, fulfilling all righteousness and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And on the cross, Jesus bore our transgressions and iniquities. He was bruised for our sins. He died and remained so for three days. And on the third day, he rose from the grave, signifying his victory over his death, his vindication, and his position as the eternal Son of God 
who had taken on flesh and had accomplished the will of the triune God and redemption. He ascended to the heavens in order to take his rightful seat at the Father's right hand while sending the Holy Spirit from the Father to come and indwell the followers of Jesus. And Jesus will return again. And at this, he will subdue all creation with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. We can do better with our confessions. No creed but Christ has a great heart behind it. But it's lacking because we don't know who that Christ is. Not only that, but no creed but Christ is a creed in itself. You're confessing that you have no creed but Christ. So if we are going to say, I believe, or we believe as a church, then let's hold on to a robust, theological, positive confession that positively excludes that which is false. And that, in this case, would be those ancient heresies that tried to pervert the faith once delivered, that Jude said, contend for that faith that was once delivered. Now we move on to the next section of our creed, which is in one God. Last we talked about I believe, and now we're going to complete that clause, I believe in one God. The historical context, as we move into the content of this creed, we begin with one of the most simple discussions, monotheism, which is expressed in one God. Monotheism is a term that means there's only one God to the exclusion of every other. Essentially, it is against polytheism, which is the belief in uh, or veneration of more than one God, many gods. And the historical context of this phrase is tied first and foremost to Judaism because Christians inherited monotheism from their Jewish heritage. So this insistence of monotheism was necessary throughout the early church because you had ancient Greco-Roman polytheism and the worldview of Gnosticism, which had that hierarchy of beings that we spoke about in an early historical background episode. So monotheism didn't really change. Um, Even in the discussions of the Trinity, it didn't change, but rather monotheism was understood in light of that divine revelation of Trinitarianism. Now, Trinitarian discussions always leaned on the reality that whenever it comes to Scripture, Scripture shows us that there is one God. Yet Scripture also shows us there are three persons who are called God, and thus there is God in one being in three persons, or as we have been saying up to this point, one usia in three hypostases. Within the context of the early church, we find various anti-polytheistic writings, many of which are satire, really, that critique the inconsistent worldview, cosmology of the pagans, and stories of their gods. Helpful for Christians were also the educated pagans and the philosophers who dealt with polytheism and scoffed at the ideologies. So that was beneficial. Uh, The intellectual arguments uh, didn't need to go too far because the other pagans were doing it for them. But for Christians, the idea of Gnostic theology became more problematic um, because that posited that the material world was inherently evil and a true God transcended far above creation. Um, And so this was a point worth addressing. And we discussed some of this worldview in our historical background episodes. Um, But there's a stress of God as the one true God in opposition to this Gnostic supreme being who had this divine deity that would dwell between creation and himself. 
And this becomes more pressing later on because Gnostic teachers would eventually suggest that uh, the God of the Old Testament, so to speak, uh, was called the Demiurge, the one who erred in creating the material world. So the God of the Old Testament was the one who messed up, and Jesus was the Savior from uh, this Old Testament God. But for Christians, God is a personal being who created the material world, and that material world was deemed good at creation. God is not only over creation as creator, but he interacts with creation. He seeks to establish a relationship with human beings who are created in his likeness, even in their bodies. And so their bodies aren't these inherently evil things that need to be um, you know, thrown off them, as the Gnostics suggested, but rather they were a part of the good creation that God created. As mentioned a second ago, monotheism didn't change. Um, and the discussions on the Trinity, but rather it was understood in light of divine revelation. And typically you'll find a stress on the divine love shared between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the one nature. So God as love um, is important. God is love, and thus you find himself um, comprised of a loving relationship of fellowship, mutual indwelling in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in this statement, you find a rejection of tritheism, polytheism, and Gnostic teachings uh, that perverted Christianity. Um, and then you also find that the statement refutes um, charges that were presented towards the Nicene believers. Uh, for example, if an Arian said that, well, you're a tritheist, well, this rejects that in its confession. So the writers of the Nicene Creed affirm that there is the essential oneness and unity of God. And the biblical support for this is uh, simple, just as the historical discussion. And so this makes it quite easy because the Bible presupposes monotheism right at the outset. And the Shema, as we mentioned earlier, um, as confession is telling, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. And then Moses further amplifies this reality of God overall in Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And the rhetorical question is answered with a resounding no one. No one is like God. Uh, God is presented as unique, and there is none like him. And consistently and constantly in the scriptures, we find this reality. Quote, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I urge you, though you do not know me, that men may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 5-6. And you'll find that echoed throughout the entire Old Testament. Uh, and you'll find it within the New Testament as well. There is one God and one mediator between God and men and that man Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, 5. In James, which has a famous verse about mere intellectual ascent, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, James 2.19. So what's, what are they doing well about? Well, the idea that God is one. He's taking that confession and he's saying, well, you're doing a good job on that part, but even the demons believe that and shudder. Um, God is creator, Genesis 1-2. through 2. He is judge and owner of creation, Genesis 14.19-22. He is the Lord, and he establishes his law in light of all this, in saying the people of Israel shall have no other gods before him or beside him in Exodus 23. So what's the application of this point? Well, our application is also simple. 
Um, it is a recognition of the unity of God and the oneness of God from the bird's eye point of view, first and foremost. Um, where it becomes more difficult, um, and where I will apply it specifically, has to deal with, um, I mean, you could even go into pantheism, but we'll get into that whenever we start talking about God as creator. But where it becomes more applicable in our context is where our modern evangelical culture will distinguish the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. Uh, the God of the Old Testament for many modern evangelicals is offensive, like uh, it was for some of the Gnostics. Um, and the Gnostics likewise would pit Jesus against this God as being wholly different from the quote-unquote God of the Old Testament. Uh, for many individuals, one is wrath and one is love. One is judging and the other is merciful, and so on and so forth. But what makes this confusing is whenever a contemporary Christian will hold that Jesus is truly God along with the Holy Spirit. Because what you find is a disconnect in how they understand the whole of Revelation. If we take in the entire account of divine revelation and um, this confession of God as a triune being and the fact that Jesus is truly God, then we're left with Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is likewise the God of the Old Testament. There is no appropriate dichotomy here that can be made between the so-called God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament without falling back into practical Gnosticism or other Christological heresy. So regardless of one's position on the Gnostic worldview, if you are separating the God of the Old Testament as this different character from Jesus— then you are practically a Gnostic like Marcion who made that distinction and who started choosing canon that rejected the Old Testament. Further, some of these Gnostics would basically say that this God of the Old Testament was the evil God and the New Testament was the good God. Um, for some contemporary Christians, that's how they speak. And so our practical application here is to be consistent in our confession of the triune God and the unity of God. Now, Whenever we talk about the Old Testament being effectively ignored by one group or removed, we also find that today in our contemporary setting. There are many modern evangelicals who do this, but they don't do it outright necessarily, but the Old Testament is virtually ignored, and we're called to unhitch from it, because Jesus is better from the Old Testament, not only in his revelation for these individuals, but also morally. Um, you'll find this in how people speak and confess that Somehow, the God of the New Testament is morally better than the God of the Old Testament, um, which becomes problematic if you are an Orthodox Trinitarian Christian. Now, in being emphatic on God's love, which is admirable, they have neglected his wrath, justice, and might. But also, they have missed many instances of love, mercy, and compassion of God found in the Old Testament, over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you'll find wrath, justice, and might, but also love, mercy, and compassion. Further, um, it's fashionable almost to sometimes say, well, that was the God of the Old Testament, and now we know what God is really like in the New Testament. There's numerous problems here. Uh, first, that major disconnect is that neglect of proper Christology. Jesus is God, the eternal Son, um, and he, as known as the primary agent in the Godhead. 
And Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father. And this means not that we know what God is quote-unquote really like, as if he changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but rather that we have a better or more full revelation of him. And this still includes those realities found within the Old Testament. It is not that there was this change in God. His purpose in sending his son was to redeem a people. He comes now not to condemn the world, but to save the world, as John 3 says. But in Revelation, we find the son coming to judge the world, and it's been given to him to judge. There is a timeline and a role in redemption that is also accounted for. But God, as the perfect representation of the Father, does not allow for that dichotomy that the God of the Old Testament was like this, and now the new God of the New Testament is really like this, and that was mistaken back then. You can't, you can't do that consistently. Now, whenever we take this further, and we really think through our Trinitarian confession that Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God, then we have this difficult time looking at God's flooding of the earth the destroying of Sodom and Gomorrah, the plagues of Egypt, punishing unbelieving Israelites, destroying evil nations, and ordering the conquests of Joshua. But if you take seriously your confession of Trinitarianism, you can just flat out say, Jesus was in full agreement with the Father and the Spirit when all these things happened. Whenever God established a created order of gender and put forward standards of sexuality and holiness in the Old Testament, it was Jesus. And we... we kind of all fall into that pit, if you think about it. Did Jesus ever talk about homosexuality? Well, I mean, he, he reaccounts the, the creation account, sure. But Jesus is God. He created man and female. He instituted the Levitical law. And the Holy Spirit, who is also God, inspired Paul to write those other texts. We need to really grasp on to this unity of God. They're not at odds with one another. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit don't struggle against each other in their will. They have a single will. So whenever we look at Genesis to Malachi, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were in complete agreement as the one God of Israel moved in mercy, judgment, love, and wrath. Not only this, but Jesus will return with sword, wrath, and justice, Revelation 19.15. In the Son's first advent, he came to bring peace and a means of everlasting reconciliation. But in the second advent of the Son, the Son will subdue his enemies, and those who are not reconciled will be finally punished. Just the same, in the unity of God, it was the Holy Spirit in agreement with the Father and the Son who struck down those who were unholy in practice and worship in the Old Testament. This is crucial whenever we get to uh, texts like 1 Corinthians, and he's talking about order and holiness and worship. We have to be consistent. The God of creation, law, and order is one across the 66 books of the Holy Scriptures. So the the question we ask for application is here, uh, where have I failed to consistently recognize God as a triune God? Where have I mistakenly created dichotomies between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when they are all in agreement? One God, three persons, We believe in one God. Have a great weekend.